probably taken down lights and trees and various other things, and that's fine. No harm, no foul. Um, but we're still in the Christmas season, and the Christmas season continues until this Wednesday, which is January the 6th, which is Epiphany, which in the kind of the tradition of the church is uh, the day in which we celebrate the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he's given as a gift not just to a particular people, but he's given as a gift to the world, to the nations of the world, to every race and nation and tribe and tongue. And and we're going to talk about seeking today, um, just so you've got a little heads up. We're going to talk about seeking. But, but you know, you just want to remember that the first seeker and the greatest seeker is God himself. He's the seeker. <laughs> He's the first seeker. And anybody who's been around this stuff for any length of time and really reflects and is sort of sober about it will look back across his experience or her experience as a Christian and will say, you know, before I started to seek, it's pretty clear that somebody was seeking me. The hound of heaven chased me down. Um, And God is a seeker, and he's seeking a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, and that is why Jesus came into the world. And these wise guys, and we're going to read about here, These wise men, these magi, they were seekers too, and they came as representatives of what Jesus would be doing through the rest of human history. They came as Gentiles. They came as those seeking to worship the one true king, and that's been going on for 20 centuries. So they're a picture of that, and January 6th is when we celebrated, and so on the second Sunday of Christmas or on Epiphany, January 6th, whenever the church is gathered together, it's actually read this particular passage. It's kind of the appointed reading for for the second Sunday of Christmas or for Epiphany. So that's why we're going to read it. So there you go. little background, huh? Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, the visit of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Some of the translations read in the east, but really, truly the better rendering is what you have in the ESV. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Kings don't particularly care for the thought that there might be another king threatening his rule and reign. So Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod was not Jewish. He was an Idumean non-Jewish person, wasn't familiar with the scriptures, was appointed to his position by the emperor, so he needed to know what the story was. And so he gathered all of the smart people, all the people who knew the scriptures, and they came and explained to him where it was that this king of the Jews, the Christ, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When when Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them on to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, 
And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And this is the verse. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It is your word because it is your word. Uh, We can trust it. You always speak the truth, and you not only speak the truth, but you speak the truth for the good of your people, for our good. So, Lord, please, from your word, by your spirit, do what you alone can do. Give to your people what they need this morning. Take this, your word, and use it in our lives. And, Lord, orient us to the source of real joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'd like you to uh, engage with me in a a little bit of juxtaposition. It's a great word. Love juxtaposition. It's it's putting two things side by side, setting two things side by side, okay? When you when, some, when two things are juxtaposed, they're, they're just sort of set side by side, one right next to the other. Here are the two things I want you to juxtapose. I want you to juxtapose verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And what I want you to set right alongside that is what is going to transpire on Thursday, January the 7th. Wednesday, January the 6th is Epiphany. I'd like to think that there would be as much enthusiasm, anticipation, sense of excitement about January 6th as there is about January 7th. But there probably isn't, especially for Texas and Alabama alums. Now, what's going to happen on January 7th? Well, it's the BCS championship game, right? It's kind of the culmination of the whole year in college football it's it's and and we have at least one Alabama alum here and we have at least two University of Texas alums they happen to be sitting on the same side of the room which is probably the ushers may want to be aware of this because (laughs) something bad could happen before the day is over I mean you know yeah right there you go hook them horns there see I knew I'd get a rise out of somebody So what's going to happen on January 7th? Well, what's going to happen on January 7th is that several dozen young men, 18 to 22 years of age, and actually a bunch of guys, 50, 55, 60, are going to be running up and down sidelines. A lot of them are going to be on the field. They're going to be trying to knock each other over, in some cases even do harm to one another. Uh, And the whole point of this will be to, to move this spherical object across a goal line 
so as to score points. And of course, the object of the game, the goal of the game, is for one of the teams to score more points than the other team, right? And then that team gets that glass trophy, that coach's trophy, the, the BCS championship trophy. Now, here's, here's the other thing that's going to go on. For tens of thousands and even maybe millions of people, at the end of that game, there will be either extraordinary joy or extraordinary sorrow. Right? Joy or sorrow. Joy. I mean, there's joy in the text. Exceedingly great joy. And Thursday night, there'll be, there'll be joy. For some people, exceedingly great joy. For other people, ooh, not so much. Some real sorrow. Now, there'll be a whole lot of folks who the next day will, will have radio talk shows that will dissect and discuss and pull apart and talk for, you know, endlessly. I mean, there'll be emails and Twitters and blogs and everything else the day after this football game. There'll be lots of folks involved in that stuff. What could have been, what should have been, what did happen, what didn't happen. It'll go on probably for a couple of days, maybe all week. And for a whole lot of folks, sourpusses, I suppose, for a whole lot of folks, they'll be looking at all this and they'll be saying, for heaven's sake, it's just a game. It's just a game. It doesn't feel like just a game, does it? I mean, maybe to you it does. Maybe this particular thing isn't that big a deal. But think about all the things that really do become big deals. Think about all of the things, maybe not a football game, but all of the things that very, very subtly sort of drew a, draw us in and, and, and sort of suck us in. They become things... They, they become things to which we attach our hearts, don't we? They become things about which we have enormous expectations. Enormous expectations. I've had the privilege of being in Japan a couple of times. I've learned a little bit about Japanese culture. And I happen to know that in Japanese culture... Getting into the right university requires doing extremely well in high school. And if you get into the right university, it brings credit to your family. But if you don't get into the right university, it brings shame to your family. And and do you know... Do you know that in Japanese culture, dozens and scores and hundreds of high school students jump off of the upper deck of parking garages and out of dormitory rooms because they know they're bringing discredit to their families, shame, and not credit or joy. See, there are things, aren't there? There are all kinds of things to which our hearts get attached. Upon which and about which 
upon which enormous expectations are placed and about which enormous expectations are created. I think these wise men had enormous expectations. Matthew 2.10 tells us that after they saw this star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Leon Morris in his commentary on Matthew says this. He translates it this way, quote, unquote, they were deliriously happy. Can you imagine being deliriously happy? Now, Morris says deliriously happy may be a bit of an overstatement, but their response is something like that. Deliriously happy. If you watch the game Thursday night, you will see delirious happiness. And you will see crushing sorrow. They'll pan the crowds. You'll see it. If you read the Bible closely, if you read it closely and carefully, you can deduce from the Bible that people are created for joy. They're created for it. They're created for it because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, exist in an environment of infinite joy and pleasure. And God who creates human beings in his image creates them with an inclination for, a disposition in the direction of, and a capacity to know joy. If you read C.S. Lewis, you'll know that C.S. Lewis believed that it was in fact joy that was at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of it. When he describes his own conversion, the title of the book is Surprised by Joy. Psalm 1611, you have shown me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are a lot of things that we can say about these wise men. There are some things that are not true of these wise men. But let me suggest that at the center of all of it is this. They were joy hunters. They were joy hunters. They were joy seekers. Just like you are. A joy hunter. A joy seeker. Three things about them. They were that. They were seekers. Second thing, their seeking was costly. And the third thing, their seeking had an outcome. It had an end. Who were these wise men? There's a lot that we don't know about them. We ought to set the record straight about a a few things. If you see creches around, you may see creches that have wise men present at them, kings, if you will, present at them. The text tells us, verse 1 of chapter 2, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east 
came to Jerusalem some period of time after the birth of Jesus. So if you see a crash with kings, three kings, they're worshiping along with the shepherds and the mules and the sheep and everything else. They weren't there. They didn't come for probably two years after the birth of Jesus. By the time they get there, Jesus is no longer in a feeding trough. The text tells us they're in a house. These wise men who came went into a house and there they presented their gifts and worshiped Jesus. So they came sometime later. The second thing, is that they, there's no indication in Scripture that they were kings. That's all tradition. Nor is there any indication in the Scripture that there were three of them. We don't know how many there were. The Western tradition has that there were three. They even, they even got names, right? Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. Very good. You win the Cupidal for the trivia question. They even get names, but that's all, that's all sort of tradition. There's no historical basis for it. There's no scriptural basis for it. So they weren't kings as far as we know. We don't know how many of them there were. Uh, we do know that they came sometime after the birth of Jesus, probably as much as two years after the birth of Jesus, when Herod realizes that he's been deceived by these wise men and then he And then he commissions his army to go to Bethlehem. He commissions his soldiers, his temple guards, whomever. He commissions them to go to Bethlehem and slaughter the innocents. The targets of his attack are all male children under the age of two. So you can kind of do the math. Herod figured that this child was approaching two years of age. And so he had all the male children in Bethlehem killed. So those are some things that that we do know, sort of don't know. But here are some other things that we know about these wise men. They were from the East. And they were from a rather unique class of people, probably from Persia, probably from Babylon. They're called magi in the original. It's the word from which we get our word magician. That word is used a couple of other places in the New Testament. It's used of Simon in Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus, Simon the magician. It's used also in uh, Acts chapter 13 of Elemas, who is also referred to as a magician. But to reduce these wise men to, to a kind of a, uh, a doer of tricks, of of subtle trickery and that sort of thing is really to underestimate who and what they were. They were associated with the courts of kings. They were, in effect, advisors to kings. They were students. They were students of the stars, which is to say they were students of astronomy, Stars and planets and constellations and the movements of heavenly bodies. They were students of wisdom. And this is an important thing. They were readers. By the way, the book table back there, you can become, you can become a magi just by visiting the book table back there. They were readers. They really were. They were students of philosophy. They were students of history. They were educated men, and hence they became 
wise. Not only were they students of philosophy and history, but they were students of wisdom literature. That's why they end up being referred to as wise men. Because they were students, they were readers, they were thoughtful, they were explorers. And they were also those who were fascinated with the supernatural. They were fascinated with the occult and occult-like things. But they were all of those things together. And they did become advisors to kings. They were associated with the courts of kings. It's the kind of thing that you read about in Daniel. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and he couldn't figure out what was going on in his dream and he, and he had all of these people come and advise him and help him understand what was going on in this dream? And then Daniel was the one who came and gave him the accurate interpretation of the dream. And and Daniel was commended for being more wise than all of the rest of the sorcerers and enchanters and all of the other wise men in Babylon. That's the kind of thing that these people did. They were skilled in wisdom. They were skilled in history. They were skilled in these interpretive abilities. And so you see, they had status they had significant status. So it's, it's not like driving down Route 60 where you see, see a sign for a tarot card reader or a palm reader or something like that. There's, there's one out by where Ivan lives. I don't remember her name, but, you know, she's out there. and she, That's not what these guys were. They were highly recognized, highly appreciated, highly educated people associated with the courts of kings. And their status actually subtly shows up in the text. How does it show up in the text? The the sort of gravitas that they had, how does it show up in the text? Well, they gain access to the king, right? They have a meeting with Herod the king. Now look, you don't just go riding into Jerusalem on your camel and roll up to the palace and knock on the door and say, hey, is the king busy? I'd like to talk to Herod. It doesn't work that way. However many of these wise men there were in this group, they would have planned over several months their journey to Jerusalem They would have had an entourage with them. They would have had to take all of their supplies with them. It would have been a fairly sizable group. And there would have been some advanced people who would have gone on ahead into Jerusalem representing these wise men who came from somebody's court back toward the east and who came probably with letters of introduction. I'm just sort of filling in some of the gaps, the historical gaps here, to sort of demystify this thing, okay? I mean, you want to put these wise men in a real place in real time. This isn't Aesop's fables. This isn't a fairy tale kind of a thing. These people are located at a particular place in history. And so these advanced people would have come to Herod, and they probably would have come with letters from the court they had come from. Kind of like when... When Nehemiah, you know, had letters from Artaxerxes and and he had those letters of endorsement that validated who and what he was as he made his trip back to the Holy Land to begin the business of rebuilding the city. Remember, he had letters. Probably permits he pulled, yeah. Building permits, construction permits, you know, that sort of thing. 
And that's what these guys probably would have had, and that's how they would have gained access to the king. Now, exactly who sent them, exactly what prompted them, we don't know. We don't know. But they came. And they came as people of prominence. It's important to remember that. They came as people of prestige. They came with some sort of endorsement. And they came, and and there is mystery in this, and if you want to talk with me about this after the service or next week or something, I'd be happy to talk with you. They came, they say, because they saw, verse 2, they saw a star when it rose. And as a result of that rising of that star, they have come to worship this one who is born king of the Jews. Now that's where the questions begin to arise, don't they? What, what was this star? What happened here? Well, if you read the commentaries, you read the opinions of people who are credible, people who are trustworthy, not people who just sort of dismiss this whole thing as some sort of legend or fairy tale or myth, but people who are credible, people who want to come to terms with the text of Scripture. They offer, offer basically three different um, explanations for this star. Number one, that it was a unique convergence of planet, star, constellation. There actually was such a convergence on May 27th, 7 B.C., you're interested, I can tell you more. There actually was a very unusual convergence of Jupiter, Saturn, and the constellation Pisces. And each of those things represents something. Jupiter represents kingship. Saturn represented the Jews. And Pisces represented Judea. Okay? Unique convergence of these things. There are some who think, uh, legitimately, that this star was a supernova uh, or that it was a comet. There are some who legitimately, looking at some passages in the scriptures, think that this star may actually have been an angelic being because you do see in the scriptures angels leading people in Exodus. The angel leads the nation and stands between the nation and harm, protecting the nation. So there are some who think that it may have been an angel. And frankly, there are some who think it may have been a combination of all three could possibly have been a combination of all three. We don't know. What we do know is that they came. They came. They were provoked for some reason to follow this star. Now you have to ask, I think, why? What are they looking for? What is the deal here? And, and here's where I guess I want to, I want to try to peel back the layers of the onion just a little bit and maybe try to read between lines and, and maybe try to use my heart and your heart and the way we live and the way we think as a sort of a window into what might have been going on with these wise men. And what provokes me at that point, what prompts me to view this in this way is simply their response to coming to Jesus. What was their response? They responded with exceedingly great joy. 
Okay, you can ask all kinds of biographical questions about them and historical questions and cultural questions, and you can, you can wonder what this star was that they followed. But the thing that fascinates me and the thing that I find myself meditating on is the fact that they came. They came. And when they got there and saw what it was they saw, they responded in the way that they did with exceedingly great joy. Why did they come? Why did they look here? Now, here's another thing, and and really there are just a couple of commentators who point this out, but I think they're spot on in this. Remember, these wise men were readers. They were students. They read wisdom literature. They read holy documents. Remember that some six centuries before the wise men, Nebuchadnezzar had deported Jews from their homeland to Babylon. And remember that 70 years after that, Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, gave them permission to go back and even provided for them to go back. But remember that when they went back, very, very few of them actually went back. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Most of them stayed there. They'd been there for 70 years. God had told them through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, God had told them, stay in the city. Plant vineyards, plant gardens, build houses, have children, give your children to one another's children in marriage so that they too can have families. Babylon had become home for these people. Persia had become home for these people. And they multiplied and they grew and they became more numerous. And there is all kinds of archaeological evidence to show that there were synagogues all over this place. And what was going on in those synagogues? The scriptures were being read week by week by week by week by week. Jewish neighbors on Saturdays got up to go to synagogue to hear the scriptures read. And their Babylonian neighbors watched them. And don't you think it's possible, isn't it conceivable, knowing that God, who is the eternal seeker, who is seeking a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, don't you think it's just a little bit possible that God might have been at work by his spirit, troubling hearts, provoking hearts, opening up hearts, causing people to say, I wonder what those Jews do when they go to that synagogue. And do you suppose it's even remotely possible that one might have said, one Babylonian might have said to his Jewish neighbor, hey, can I go with you on Saturday? And do you suppose it's remotely possible that some of these wise men out of this class of wise men, these highly educated people, might have looked at their own systems, the polytheism of Babylonian religion, the cruelty of the history of their kings, going back across the Medo-Persian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Assyrian Empire, do you suppose they might have looked at their culture and their system and said, this is bankrupt. This is bankrupt. Human kings are bankrupt. Polytheism is bankrupt. And might have asked the question, I wonder what these Jews 
have to offer. And do you suppose it's possible that one of those wise men or two of those wise men or three of those wise men or some of those neighbors living alongside those Jews might have gone to those synagogues and might have heard this read. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end. And do you suppose that those wise men having read Isaiah, that little portion of Isaiah 9 might have said, gee, I wonder if there's anything more in this book about this son. And I wonder if any of those rabbis, again, I understand. I'm speculating a bit. I'm wondering a bit. What I'm not speculating about or wondering about is the fact that there were Jews and synagogues scattered all across this part of the world. And that week by week, these promises were read and reread and reread and reread again. And again, knowing how the human heart works, knowing that earthly kings, and earthly trophies, and earthly aspirations, and earthly longings all collapse under the weight of human expectation. Do you think it's possible that these wise men might have read more deeply, looked more deeply into Isaiah and into all of the promises that are contained throughout the whole of the Old Testament, beginning beginning with the prototypical verse, the seminal verse, the seminal promise, Genesis 3.15, somebody's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to vanquish evil. He's going to vanquish the evil one. He's going to obliterate it all forever. And all of the rest of the promises that emanate and flow out of and stem from that one promise. There are commentators who I believe rightly suggest that that's exactly what was going on with these wise men. They looked at the bankruptcy of their own culture. They were exhausted by the false promises of earthly kings, earthly institutions, earthly joys, exhausted by them. And in the scriptures, they heard a promise, the prospect, the hope of something that would not disappoint. And they came and they found it. And when they found it, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They were deliriously happy. And they went home with hearts full. Did it cost them? Second thing, of course it did. Cost them time, cost them money. And you know what? It probably, more than anything else, cost them pride. I mean, come on. 
They show up at the palace of a king. They expect to find a king in a place where kings are expected to be found. And they end up in the presence. They end up in the the presence of a family with a reputation. You wonder why Joseph and Mary stay in Bethlehem and don't go back to Nazareth? Again, read between the lines, connect the dots. Mary's got a reputation back there. (laughs) Mary's got a reputation. She's pregnant out of wedlock. That's a capital crime, punishable by death. That's not a safe place. Maybe that's why they stay in Bethlehem. These wise men with status, with letters, with resumes. They go to the place you'd expect to find a king. They go to a palace, but he's not there. And the king who's on the throne doesn't know anything about the king who has just been born. And where do they find themselves? They find themselves in the presence of peasants. Peasants. It takes enormous courage for people of prominence, power, and prestige to look at it and say, it's bankrupt. It's bankrupt. It can't bear the weight of my expectations. It takes enormous humility to leave the palace and go to a house with dirt floors where animals are roaming the courtyard. Did it cost them time, money, and pride? Great line from a Mary Chapin Carpenter song. There are lots of things in life to be unsure of, but there's one thing I can safely say I know of all the things that finally desert us. Pride is always the last thing to go. Don't let pride get in the way. Did it cost? You bet it did. But was there an outcome? Yeah, there was. There was an outcome. There was a source of joy sufficient, great enough to bear the weight of their expectations. And so they left with exceeding great joy. I want to encourage you about a book that's on the book table back there. You've heard me mention this name several times. Um, Tim Keller has written three books. He's written more than that, but the three books that are the most prominent right now, The Reason for God, The Prodigal God, and his latest book called Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power and the only hope that really matters. It's back there. Ruth will sell it to you. This is what he writes in the introduction. I'm going to close with this. In the 1830s, when Alexis de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, he noted, quote, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of of abundance. That's almost 200 years ago. And folks, the strange melancholy has become a life, a life-destroying cancer 
in our culture. Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was illusory because, de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. Sorrow and despair are different. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others so that if you experience a career reversal, for example, you can find comfort in your family to get you through it. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to, and it breaks your spirit. De Tocqueville says it comes from taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it, like a football game, like an education, like a bank account, like physical appearance, like all of these things that so easily draw us in and which are not adequate to bear the weight of our expectations of joy. Folks, there's one place and one place only where true and lasting joy is to be found. I know you well enough to know that I think you know this, just like I think I know it. But that one place is the God of heaven and earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one, not a football game, not a career, not appearance, not a bank account, not a resume. Jesus is the one who says, come to me and keep coming to me and keep coming to me. Seek me and keep seeking me. Come to me, all you who are exhausted by the false promises of your culture. Oh, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's his invitation. It's his invitation. Come and keep coming. Don't allow yourself to be drawn away to false gods that simply can't get it done. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's what the wise men found. That's why their hearts were full. That's why they could go home glad because they had found the true source of true joy. God, help us to know this, to believe it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in the midst of the bankruptcies of human cultures, in the midst of the bankruptcy of human leaders and ideas and institutions and organizations and marketing appeals, give us grace and humility to detach ourselves from these things and reattach ourselves to the only hope that really matters, you yourself. Through this year, 
Lord Jesus, give us this grace to that end. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Number 226, as with gladness men of old, did the guiding star behold. Number 226.